0: Well, trouble with England had been brewing for some time, and commerce and trade on the high seas were greatly retarded by the frequent capture of our vessels, and the impressment of our seamen, and preparatory for the ulterior resort of kings, an embargo was laid on all shipping in the United States to prevent its falling into the hands of the enemy in case of war. This was followed June 18th, 1812, by a a declaration of war against Great Britain and her dependencies. But the war destroyed my business, and things looked extremely gloomy as to a means of a living. But just then, an opening appeared before me to move to the West, and I embraced it as providential. The month of October 1812, found me in Fowler, Trumbull County, Ohio, and I concluded, with many others, that it was better to meet the foe by the side of companions-in-arms and led by skillful officers than to meet him at my own door, single-handed, and that perhaps in the night. Having been in New York when our ship, the Chesapeake, was fired into by the Leopard, and five of my wife's brothers had been impressed into the British Navy and never again got home. when well, my patriotic blood was up to fighting heat. And I enlisted for a year in the 27th Regiment, United States Infantry.
1: Welcome to the foot of the rapids, where today... We will examine the writings of Alfred Brunson. If you have listened to the show previously, you may understand that we have something of a love-hate relationship with Alfred Brunson, and we give him a bit of an odd voice in response to that. But we cannot ignore Brunson. He's a good writer and often tells of episodes or minutiae that is often overlooked by other participants in the War of 1812. Therefore, his recollections are of great value. But Bronson is also a do-gooder, a dudley do-right, a trait I personally don't find overly endearing. He would go on in life to be a Methodist minister, and no doubt his memories of the war are colored with a hindsight looking down from a loftier pulpit than the mud and whiskey of the Western frontier. A reputation of righteousness needed to be upheld. His memoirs were published in Cincinnati in 1872, entitled, in typical 19th century hugeness, A Western Pioneer or incidents in the life and times of Reverend Alfred Brunson, embracing a period of over 70 years written by himself. The man was long-lived to 89 years of age, dying in Wisconsin in 1882, very near a War of 1812 battlefield. His company of the 27th U.S. Regular Infantry was recruited in Warren, Ohio, and they marched to Cleveland, where he was appointed orderly sergeant before taking an open boat to the Sandusky River and the Fort Seneca-Fort Stevenson area in what is now Fremont, Ohio. We've heard from Brunson a lot in this series, and as this is a Great Stories episode, we will just light on a few passing tales from his extraordinary experience.
0: When when Commodore Perry appeared with the fleet at Sandusky Bay, he he sent to General Harrison for 80 infantry to act as Marines in the fleet. I tried to be one of them, but my colonel refused to let me go, saying he could not spare me. One of our company, Benjamin Hall, who went with the fleet, performed a feat that would have immortalized him if he had any friends to sound his fame. He, he was placed on board the Ohio Schooner, which mounted a long 24-pounder pivot gun. In the action, all the ramrods for the gun were shot away or otherwise destroyed, but one. And in the heat of the action, by some strange oversight, that one ramrod was left in the gun when fired, and the gun left useless for the rest of the battle. Well, the officers and men stood looking at each other, and then at the rod, some eight or ten rods from the vessel, and in the midst of the bubbles caused by the grape and canister shot of the enemy. while Well, O'Hall soon relieved them from the painful suspense. He stepped to the shroud rack and took down a piece of small halyard. And taking one end of it in his hand jumped overboard and swam to the rod seizing it with the other hand crying out to those on board, haul in, haul in this was done with a will and after taking up the rod they hauled him aboard and the gun was soon in service again Huzzah!
1: a little insight into the shenanigans that accompanied the Battle of Lake Erie, apparently. It paints the heroics of the Navy's day in a slightly different light. Perhaps not rose-tinted glasses, but more through the cloudy water of Lake Erie. A signal victory, nonetheless. A slight confusion here. Bronson states the schooner Ohio, but history records the Ohio captained by famed Great Lakes seaman Daniel Dobbins, as being sent back for fresh stores of supplies at Erie and did not contribute in the battle. So either the name of the vessel was mistaken or young, friendless Benjamin Hall made the entire tale up as a fish story. But great stories are all we are after today, so we'll continue loading that lone 24-pounder. Brunson also mentioned Grapeshot making bubbles in the water. This must have been one intense and close quarter fight, if it is to be believed. I don't know if the smaller vessels ever got to such close ranges. But if the Battle of Lake Erie is a subject you have much interest in, Brunson's memoirs do record some great descriptions of the harbor at Putin bay in the aftermath of the battle, and the conditions of the damaged ships, as well as good descriptions of South Bass Island from this time. In our current age, the 21st century, conspiracy theories abound and it is nearly its own subculture now. The speed of communication, the ease of self-publishing anything on the loudspeaker of the Internet, and its ability to disseminate information quickly to any size audience. Mistrust of government and belief in shadow organizations are commonplace to the storytelling we endure each day. But with Brunson we see that this is not a new phenomenon. Following the Battle of Lake Erie, he indicates an idea that was apparently circulating at the time, that General Hull was bought off by the British, and a shadow Federalist organization and that the fall of Detroit and the surrender of the army was part of a much larger and orchestrated plan fully manipulating the War of 1812 on a much higher level than either government. We shall see in the story ahead.
0: The, the day following, the prisoners were landed with some of whom I became familiar, and especially with one midshipman from whom I learned some facts and incidents of the war, which, though suspected and believed by many, had not seen the light through the press. But as they were corroborated by some facts within my own knowledge, and all linking into a chain with the, 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 the printed facts, I deem them to be well-authenticated and worthy of credence." Well, Well, this midshipman, previously being a sergeant, he took his turn in being orderly for General Brock, and was so when he landed at Spring Wells, three miles below Detroit. This brought him in close proximity with Brock. And when they saw the rage of the Americans at being thus sold, and without a chance to defend themselves, Brock said it would have been hard taking those men. Then, said I, Hull sold his men, did he? Oh yes, came the answer. That was understood. Or Brock would not have ventured over the river with a force so much less than that of the Americans. Well, what did Hull get for them, I asked. Why, he was to have sixteen dollars a head for the men and pay for the provisions, guns, ammunition, etc. This story of the sergeant reminded me of an incident that occurred in Bridgeport, Connecticut, on the morning of the 17th of August, 1812, the morning after Hull's surrender, which took place on the 16th of that month. There were in Bridgeport and the neighboring towns men who were Tories and in the British service in the Revolutionary War, and who down to this time, were still drawing half-pay from the British Treasury, and of course were now Federalists, the political party which favored England and were opposed to the war. Among them was a Major who, by common consent, was their leader, and his residence in Stratford was called headquarters of this this Tory gang. On the morning of the 17th of August, as, as I before stated, The the day after Hull's surrender, I happened to be in company with some of this Tory gang, who seemed not to regard my presence as as I was but a youth, and who were conversing freely about the war. When one of them, who was said to have been an ensign in the British service, and now on half pay, said, Hull has surrendered, and spoke of it as, as if the matter was so understood by them all, as to be expected. Well, how do you know, said another. Why, I I got it at headquarters yesterday. This answer seemed to settle all questions as to its being so with the others, and all seemed to chuckle over it as something good in their estimation. I turned away in disgust at their treachery to the country, not believing the report. But in ten days after, the mails brought a confirmation of it. This raised the query as to how it was known at the Tory headquarters on the very day of the surrender. As the war was expected for some years before it occurred, the measures to divide the Union were still in progress of preparation and never being fully exploded, till after the infamous Hartford Convention in 1814. In the meantime, Hull was governor of Michigan, and was expected to have the command of the army in that region in case of war. Brock was governor and commanding general in Upper Canada, just across the river from Detroit, and the two had opportunities for private interviews and correspondence, whatever it might be. In the winter of 1811 and 1812, Hull was in Washington, when and where the plans of operations were adopted. From thence, before going to Ohio, he went through New England when he had ample time and opportunity to arrange matters for future operations. The plan, as it, as it leaked out, was, was for him to surrender Detroit, which it was supposed would draw General Dearborn with all the regulars from New England to the northwest. A British fleet and army were to hover on the coast. The governors of the states were to refuse, as as some of them did, to call out the militia at the proclamation of the government, and the people were to rise en masse and declare for a separation from the Union and for the annexation to England, and that the matter should be sure by a simultaneous action the day for the surrender of Detroit was fixed upon. I can account for it being known at the Tory headquarters in Connecticut, on the day of its occurrence, upon no other principle. Nor is it possible to account for all of Hull's movements previous to the surrender, without the admission of these facts substantially, if not in detail, namely, one, before he reached Detroit with his army, say, while at the River Raisin, the news of the declaration of war reached him, and this was known in Malden before it was known at Detroit. The court-martial that tried him seemed to be satisfied that he sent the news to Malden, as as my sergeant affirmed he did. Two, he neglected to take Malden when he could have done it with ease, either before he reached Detroit or while he lay at Sandwich. Three, he retreated from Sandwich to Detroit before there was any danger of an attack or any force of the enemy sufficient to annoy him was in the country. 4. He sent Colonels Cass and MacArthur with their commands away on a fool's errand, just in time to have them out of the way when Brock was to, and did, come. 5. He refused to let his men fire, though the guns were in position, loaded, and the matches lighted by them, and could have defeated the enemy with ease. Had the fight begun, Cass and MacArthur were near enough to have cut off the enemy's retreat. six, the very manner in which Brock marched his troops up to Detroit showed that he expected no resistance, uh, doing doing so in, in column and in the road, in the face of guns enough to have blown him and his army to cinders. Now, taking all these into view, the two incidents, the one in Bridgeport and that given by the sergeant, link in with the chain of events known to history, and so as to show the truth of them.
1: The idea that the surrender of Detroit was preordained as part of a federalist separatist plot is a wild one. But again, the fact that many at the time had believed this conspiracy theory is a fascinating look into the minds and temperaments of early Americans. Whether General Hull was wrapped up in this scheme almost matters not as he received the fate of traitors regardless. William Hull served the Continental Army during the American Revolution and was appointed as the first territorial governor of Michigan in 1805 by President Thomas Jefferson. There he negotiated the Treaty of Detroit in 1807, which annexed most of the lands around here at the foot of the rapids, basically everything north of the Maumee River where the fort sits. At the surrender, Isaac Brock released the American militia to their homes while the regulars were marched as POWs to Montreal, where General Hull was treated with relative comfort. After an exchange, he endured a lengthy wait before being tried in Albany, New York, in the early months of 1814. He was charged with treason, cowardice, neglect of duty, and unofficer-like conduct and found guilty on all charges other than treason. Sentenced to be shot, the only general officer to so be, his sentence was commuted by President James Madison based on his status as a veteran of the Revolutionary War. Hull's son Abraham died at the Battle of Lundy's Lane in 1814 and his nephew Isaac served in the U.S. Navy as captain of old Ironsides herself, the USS Constitution. It's a small 1812 world. Concluding our story time for this hour, we turn to Lighter fare. And this tale comes from the American advance through the hinterlands of Canada on the Thames Campaign in October of 1813, where many Americans seem in high spirits. It's a tale of finding and consuming honey, like a big war of 1812 Pooh Bear.
0: On the second night, we encamped at a farm, Uh, I think it was Dawson's, and the chief officers lodged in the house. The woman, being a rampant Briton, gave Harrison and the others a terrible tongue-lashing for coming there, calling them thieves and robbers, and if she only had the 48th British Regiment, the one fleeing before us, she would drive the whole army away. Among other lamentations, She said she should not have a beehive left till morning. Well, the general replied, Madam, I will put a guard over the bees and gave the necessary orders. But the word got out among the men of the abuse the woman had given the officers and the placing of the sentinel showed where the bees were. If she had held her peace, it would not have been known their location was such that she had bees but the abuse preparing the men for revenge and the sentinels having no objection. They would be so long walking one way that a man would slip in behind them and carry off a hive before they turned to walk back. And when relieved, they would help eat the honey. (laughs) By this means, every hive disappeared before morning. And the general told the quartermaster general to pay for all of them.
1: Ah, General Harrison Always the nice guy Always the fat checkbook Just a quick fact check again on Brunson The farm he mentions is probably called Dolson's instead of Dawson's And the British regiment he mentions is more likely the 41st regiment of foot rather than the 48th I don't believe the 48th were even in North America at this time. But forgiveness always to the memory of old soldiers. So a quick, happy, and mighty nod to our brothers and sisters in Canada of the 41st. Huzzah! Thank you for joining us here on the Foot of the Rapids, this episode generously funded by the Daughters of 1812. We thank you and we'll see you again.